0: Good morning. It's good to see you and uh, and good to be seen. All right, we're going to be in Ephesians 2 this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn to Ephesians 2 in your Bible as we continue our Letters to the Church series. We are on the the fourth week in Ephesians. We've made it to chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1 in just a minute. And as you turn there, I'm going to go ahead and give you... Uh, Just a little background to the conversation that we're going to be having as we move into this text. So, um, what what Paul is going to lead us into today is a deeper understanding of the connection between what we believe and what we do. Now, we've had that conversation in here before, and I think that we would agree that wholesale in humanity, there seems to be... A ironic disconnect between what we say is true or what we say we believe versus what comes out of our lives. So just, just, you know, just an example would be if we ask the average person, what would you say uh, is the most important thing to life? Or what would you say uh, would bring you the most happiness? Most people would would default to some type of relationship answer like my spouse or my children, my family. Those are the things that are most important to me. Those are the the moments I'm most happy. That is what life is all about. However, if we were to take an inventory of that person's life, what we would see is that they're actually pursuing, working towards something quite different. And so while on one hand we say, this is what life is all about, it's what makes me happy. On the other hand, we tend to spend our time, our our resources, our energy on other things like careers, ambition, possessions, accolades, achievements, finances, status. And so, so we see there's just a clear disconnect oftentimes between what we say means the most to us versus what we actually spend all of our efforts pursuing. Now, on a deeper level, we see there's a similar disconnect when it comes to faith. It's most vividly expressed in the irony of the, the atheist who has professed that there is no God and nothing after this life when we die. We simply die. When that very person is facing their, their own death, there's, there's an irony in watching a person shift and begin reaching out to God. But equally valid and vivid and ironic is the Christian or the professed Christian who lives their life. They wear the t-shirt. They show up at church. They're involved in the Bible studies. They want everybody to know that they believe in Jesus and they believe that Jesus secures the afterlife. Yet, when that same person faces some sort of struggle or trial or form of suffering or even death itself their faith is shattered and all of a sudden they're pushing back questioning what it is they really believe is this is this really true now you and I we probably fall somewhere in between all of that there's a uh, a book that I, I read this last week by by Craig Groeschel he's the pastor of Life Church and he as a pastor, has made the observation watching Christians come into the faith and then grow towards maturity in the faith and grow and become more and more faithful to Jesus. He's made some observations, and and among those observations, he's laid out some some clear disconnects that he sees between what a Christian says they believe to be true and what's actually coming out of their lives. And so he wrote a book called The Christian Atheist, and I hadn't read it uh, before this week. It was on my shelf, and I was doing some cleaning up and reorganizing. I came across the book, and the title—the title just begged me uh, to read the book. I was Christian atheist. What is this all about? And so, so I started reading it. And what what I found is that chapter by chapter, what uh, what, what Pastor Groschel does is he actually walks through the different just very practically walks through the disconnects that he observes between uh, what, a, what a Christian professes to be true versus what's coming out of their life. And so you get to the, to the end of the book, in the last chapter, he, he lays out a, a three-line description of just these, these classifications of belief that he sees in Christians' lives, and he actually lays his own life out as an example of his spiritual journey as he grew and became more faithful to Jesus, And so here is the first line that he lays out is this. He says, uh, the person who comes to Jesus and this is what is coming out of their life. I believe in God and the gospel of Christ enough to benefit from it. And so he's just making the observation that as people come into the faith of Christianity, believe in Jesus, turn to him for forgiveness of sins, that it seems like a first line that people will cross is the line of what is this going to do for me? So they show up at church, they're, they're ready to go, they've got their Bible and pen, but the things that they're writing down are how is this going to benefit me? And so uh, maybe even some of us here today are here simply for what God is going to do for us. Then he, then he observes maybe a deeper layer of the of the the journey towards Christ a an observation that that moves from what is this going to do for me to I'm willing to now give back and so here's what what he says this person would say I believe in God and the gospel of Christ enough to contribute comfortably so so this person has gotten to the place in their journey of following Jesus that they're realizing oh he has commanded and called me to give back to the kingdom and now I'm willing to do so matter of fact I don't mind letting people know that I'm willing to help out only to the extent that it's comfortable somebody needs a little financial help I'll pray about it aka I'm going to go see if I have a little extra spare change laying around And if I do, if I've I've got some extra money, I don't mind helping as long as it doesn't like make me uncomfortable or like really cost me something. And it's not true just of money. It's true of our time. Uh, I'm willing to serve. I'm willing to volunteer. Put Put me on the rotation and I'm willing to show up and serve as long as it doesn't become uncomfortable, as long as it doesn't become hard to do, I'm willing to give back. So it isn't just about what I get. I'm willing to give back to the kingdom. And so the third line of observation that he draws and he he describes is this. It's a person who would say, I believe in God and the gospel of Christ enough to give my life to it. Now, if I were to start there and just ask that question of the Christians here today, who believes in the gospel of Christ enough to give your life to it, either out of ignorance or out of guilt, and some of you, out of just true confession, uh, we would, most of us, we'd, we'd raise our hand. Oh yeah, absolutely. I believe in it enough to give my life to it. However, there is an ironic disconnect between that statement And what is actually coming out of our lives. Now, what we're going to learn today through Ephesians 2 is that our walk with Christ, at its core, it isn't a doing issue. It's it's a believing issue. Because if we truly, truly, truly believe something to be true, there will be evidence of it in our lives. If we truly believe that what is going to make us happy, is a healthy marriage, then you'll see work coming out of my life to make my marriage healthy. And so it's really not a doing issue, it's a believing issue. So here's what I want to do now. I want to give us a couple of tools to help us better understand the relationship between believing and doing, and and really just a a helpful way to read the Bible. Okay, so I'm going to give you two terms. I'm going to define them. Then I'm going to talk about the relationship between the two and why it matters. So here it is. The first word is imperative. Now, this one's a little bit, a little bit obvious, okay? The word imperative makes us think of uh, something that must be done. It's imperative that this be done today or be done right now or be done in this way. And that's, that's, that's really what it means. Imperatives in the scripture are commands. They're commands to, that you must do or must not do. Now, uh, the church as a whole, we're actually pretty good at the list of the commands. Not good at doing them, but good at coming up with the list. It's how we read the Bible a lot of times. I'm just looking for the things to do and the things to not do. Now, I know this is true because if you go outside the walls of the church and just grab a non-church goer off the street and ask that person, what is the church really about? more often than not you're going to get an answer something like this it's a list of rules the church is all about the things i'm supposed to be doing to make god happy and the things i'm not supposed to be doing to keep him from getting mad and so and so when i say that we're good at the imperatives in the church what i mean is is that we we've bought into that and for many of us the christian faith is simply that what i do and not do now the, the world that we we live in operates that way, and so it makes sense to me why we would default to that. We're a performance-based society. You get ahead by performing. You get acknowledged by performing. That happens in families. Some of you are still performing to be acknowledged by your dad. It happens in our workplace. Some of you are very uneasy right now in your workplace. Your boss is sending you vibes. And and so you're you're working hard right now to earn his or her approval. And so that's how the world operates. If you want to become, you must do. So what I do then defines who I am. The problem with that for Christians is that the Bible doesn't read that way. That's not the gospel. Actually, the gospel starts with indicatives. So the second term I want to introduce to you today is the term indicative. Now, the way I remember uh, the meaning of what indicative is is that it indicates something. So, in terms of the gospel, when we're reading the indicative verbs, uh, what we're what we're reading are the things that God has done, has done for us on our behalf. Jesus died on the cross. It's an indicative. God has saved us. It's an indicative. The things that God has done on our behalf and the things that God has done in us, to us. Now, here's why that matters. Okay, Here's the relationship between the two. As you read the Bible, both Old and New Testament, what you're going to see is that before the Bible ever gets to a command, an imperative, it begins at the indicatives. Every imperative imperative in your Bible is rooted in an indicative. And by, by rooted in, what I mean is this. God speaks to the authors of who are writing the Bible, and he says to us, because this is who you are, because this is what I have done for you, this is what I've, because this is what I've done in you, indicatives, therefore, go Do. And that's different from the mindset of our world. God says, because you are my son, because you are my daughter, because I have done everything required to save you, to adopt you, to bring you into my kingdom, because that is true, therefore go do. And so what Paul is going to show us today is that when we see that there's a lack of doing in our life, it's not that we need to work harder, it's that we need to revisit what it is that we say we believe. Now, here's, here's how Ephesians rolls out. So we, we're starting chapter 2 today, so we can start in just a second in verse 1. We've already had three sermons in chapter 1. We're going to roll through the first 10 verses of chapter 2, and we've still yet to get to an imperative. We're going to get to one. Matter of fact, we're going to fast forward to next week's sermon, to verse 11, just so we can see what an imperative looks like. But all the way through verse 10 of chapter 2, no imperatives, all indicatives. Very clearly, precisely, even sometimes seemingly redundantly, God wants to clarify, this is who you are, because this is what I've done for you, this is what I've done in you, before he ever gets to the, therefore, go do So let's pick this up in Ephesians 2 chapter 1, excuse me, verse 1, chapter 2 verse 1. Uh, So here's how Paul begins. He's going to begin by indicating what life was like before being saved. And so here's how he describes who we were before Jesus, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once, what? walked, okay? Now it's an important word for understanding uh, this text we're going to be in today. It's going to begin with walked and end with walked, okay? And so that's what we're after today. We're noticing that our life isn't matching up with what we say to be true. We're not walking out what our hearts are saying we believe. And so he's going to say, he's going to start with the way we used to walk. And, and, it's, and he uses a pretty bold description to describe who we used to be. And you were, what? Dead. Dead in your trespasses. Now, death is a pretty weighty word. And, and it's weighty because death itself is weighty. And, and we, we, we revisit this every time we go to a funeral. Every time we're in the hospital with someone who's about to pass away or has just passed away we're reminded of the weight and the permanence of death and I don't think Paul was just grabbing words out of the air and flippantly throwing them into sentences I think he wants us to stop for a second and ask what do you mean by that and so on a on a, on, a, on a symbolic or a metaphoric level, I think, um, I think Paul is saying something to us here. He's talking about our inability to fix what is broken. He's saying, remember when you used to be broken? And, and I don't mean broken like you broke your leg and you had to hobble around on crutches. What I mean is, remember when you were so broken, you couldn't fix yourself? Right? Because what, dead men don't, don't fix themselves. Right? Right? Injured men hobble along, sick people fumble about, but dead men do nothing to fix the condition of being dead. And so he's reminding us of how broken we used to be, so broken that we couldn't fix ourselves. Matter of fact, every effort that we put forth to try to fix who we were, to change who we were, to become better people, every effort failed us. And every failure reminded us that we were in a very desperate and hopeless situation. This is, we see it in our lives when we make promises to ourselves, right? Tomorrow I'm going to do better. Tomorrow I'm going to be better. I'm going to cheat on this meal, but I'm not going to on the next one. I'm going to, tomorrow I'm back on my diet, right? How are your New Year's resolutions working out for you? okay, if you're one of the, the few who are actually keeping your resolutions, then high five, we're so proud of you. The rest of us, let's just be honest, right? We're not good at keeping promises to ourselves. Why? Because we can't fix our own brokenness. We can do good for a while. We can give it a good run. We can muster up some energy and pull on our boots and, 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 and get busy for it. And, and, and before you know it, what? We, we slip right back into the same old ruts. Now, Paul is then on a a symbolic level reminding us of how broken we used to be. I think on a more literal level, he's he's very clearly uh, describing our eternal trajectory. That under the curse of sin and death, we're headed somewhere. We're headed to a place where death has the final word. And he's reminding that you you were as good as dead before God saved you. I think he's implying other things, like um, the the idea of living in bondage to shame and guilt. I, I try to say this often. Like, if I'm having a conversation with somebody who is struggling with the belief in God, or is a professed atheist, agnostic, um, and and we're talking through maybe creation or physics or whatever it may be, one of the questions I always want to get to with that person is this, what do, you, what do you do with your shame and your guilt? Like surely you're not going to tell me that you're perfect. I mean, you may be in your eyes a good person, but surely you're not going to say I'm perfect, I never mess up. So what do you do with that? You see, this description of being dead in our trespasses is that we're shackled to it. You know, from the beginning, God said to Adam, He said, Hey, sin will always bring about what? Death. And so in Genesis 3, we read, read the story of sin entering into the human story. And what God said would happen happened. And from that moment there was a fracture in the relationship between God and, and man and a, and a shadow of sin and death was cast forward over, over the timeline of humanity. That's why the psalmist writes in Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He, he's not just talking about uh, dying. He's not just talking about what happens when you get to the end of your life. He's talking about life. Like That verse is, that verse is applicable on Mondays. Like I I needed to be encouraged by that right now, because I'm I'm walking under the shadow of the curse of sin and death. And so Paul begins by reminding us remember, you were a dead man walking. Now, in order to fully understand our deadness, I think that we have to come to grips. And embrace the reality of just how wicked our sin is now, let me talk through this for a second, okay. Um, we usually reserve the word "wicked" for the really bad people or you know the um, demonic kind of things, but the scripture actually says that that we we are wicked, that our sin is wicked, and there are two then. Reactions that I typically display in my life when it comes to the acknowledgement of sin. I'm not projecting this on you, but maybe you can relate, okay? So as I'm walking through life and uh, my sin is revealed to me, the Holy Spirit stops me and says, Jason, think about what you just said. Think about what you just did. And, and, I, and I realize, you know what? I just messed up. I just sinned. There are two typical reactions that I, I'll just be honest with you, that I, that I come up with. The first one is this, um, to minimize it, okay? So like, what I'll do, and I'm just being honest with you, when the Holy Spirit reveals to, to me sin in my life, one of my first reactions is to think about you. And, and what I mean is this, I tend to think about counseling conversations and, and all the sins that have been confessed to me by all the people, and, I, and then I compare my sin and, and so what I end up doing is not necessarily making you look worse, I'm just trying to make me look better, and I minimize it. And I, well, it's not as bad as so-and-so. I mean, remember last Tuesday, God, when they came in? Remember what they told me? You remember, you know, or what they told us, God, about their, their wickedness? Well, I mean, at least it's not that bad. And So I, I, so I minimize it. Another reaction that, that I will display to sin, if it's something that, like, truly I I. I you know, I can't minimize it. I, I have to realize that it was, it was big. Um, then my other reaction is to then, is, is to convince myself that I can never be forgiven. And so then my next step is to figure out a way to hide it well. So those are my two reactions oftentimes to me acknowledging sin in my life. One, I downplay it. Two, I try to hide it really well. Now, in, when we let the Bible tell us and describe to us the power that sin has in our lives, we're going to hear some really, really weighty words. In Romans 6, uh, I'll begin in verse 9, Paul is writing to describe this struggle between sin and, and not sinning. And here's how he begins. He says, we, this is what we know. Starting off with what we know, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him, right? Jesus defeated death. Verse 10, for he for the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves. There's a big imperative word consider there is a command consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus notice how he didn't say now you need to behave yourselves you need to work harder what was his command right here at the beginning you need to consider what is true you need to revisit once again what it is you say you believe verse 12 let not Sin, therefore reign, it's a pretty weighty word, in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. He's going to go on to say, quit presenting yourself to sin. Now now here's the conclusion that, that I'm going to draw from this about sin. If you give sin permission, it'll own you. You present yourself to sin, Sin is not picky on who it owns. It'll own you. It'll gladly take the reins of your life. Now this is the way Paul is describing us before Jesus saved us. We were dead. We were desperate. Sin was ruling us whether we wanted to admit it or not. We had no way to sever the tie between shame and the way we see ourselves in the mirror. We couldn't perform enough. We couldn't be good enough. And so for many of us, we downplayed sin or we just tried to hide it. Now, Paul is going to tell us then in the next couple of verses how we walked as dead men. Okay? So we're still dealing with the reality of who we used to be. Verse 2 begins with, in which you once walked. So there's clearly this vivid image. You used to participate in this. You used to do this. So then he uses these visual words to describe how we walked as dead men. The first one, following. Okay, So that brings to mind the image of walking. I'm walking and I'm following something. Following. First thing he mentions is the course of this world. So it doesn't matter... What time period you're born into, what language, what culture, what socioeconomic class, what race, you and I, we are born into a culture, and culture has a course, okay? Um, you can clearly see, regardless of whether you're conservative or liberal, you can clearly see our culture taking a course right now, from conservatism towards Uh, towards a more liberal view of the world right or wrong agree or disagree you can't disagree with the fact that our culture is shifting okay culture has a course every human culture has had a course now what's difficult for us as Americans is we tend to go back to the 1800s and 1900s where it seemed like faith and nation were one and the same if you were American you were a Christian now I'm not saying that that is true, but I am saying that the course of culture at that time tended to be primarily founded in Christian values as they were understood. Okay? But culture still had a course. And so it doesn't matter what culture you live in, what, what Paul is saying is when you were a dead man walking, here's what's true about your life. You were following the course of your culture, period. Just being born in the 1800s and being a good patriot American who went to church didn't save you, didn't make you one of God's children. You still had to believe in Jesus. You still had to follow Jesus. And so I think it's difficult sometimes for us as Americans to realize that when we think about culture misguiding us, we tend to think about the the other cultures of the world. And fail to realize that culture, in and of itself, is just is really just man's ambition, man's invention, man's way of dealing with and playing with the universe, man's way of trying to navigate his way through the world and leave and, and leave a name to make a mark for himself. Culture is just the way we organize our narcissism and our so-called good ideas. Now. The first way that we, we walked as dead men and women is we followed the course of the world. The next one, Paul's really going to slap us in the face. Look at what he says. You followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is just a real fancy way of saying you followed demonic influence in your life. More specifically, you followed the influence of Satan now one of the great talents abilities of satan is to operate and work and not be seen so typically our reaction to that is uh, not not me i mean i was a little selfish i you know i had a i had a few sins i struggled with but i didn't i wasn't a demon worshiper i wasn't a satanic worshiper and and what, what Paul is saying is you were following the influence of Satan and you didn't even know it. Now, I don't want to get too far out on them here. I, uh, one of the, uh, the writings that helped me understand the, uh, the ability for Satan to lead me Without me knowing it, it was, a, it was a, actually a fictional work by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. It's a fantastic work, by the way, just as a piece of literature. But what, what Lewis does through The Screwtape Letters is he writes it from a demon's perspective. And even though it's fiction, it's very insightful on, on just how luring and how conniving and how tricking and how stealthily Satan can work in our lives and us not even know it so Paul isn't going to mix words here. He's going to say, as a dead man walking, you are following Satan's influence, whether you knew it or not. Now, before we get into this defensive mindset of, okay then, it's the world's fault. It's culture's fault. Paul just said it. I was just following culture. It's, it's culture's fault that I, that I believe this way or I, I feel this way about things. Or, before we go on to the next one, the the devil made me do it. See, right there, Paul said it. I was just following through life and and Satan was tricking me and tripping me up and and I I couldn't see all of his schemes and and so the devil made me do it. Before we jump on those bandwagons, look at what Paul does, look at what he does next. Just very clearly and explicitly he says, verse 3, among whom... We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We participated in it. Who is the one carrying out the desires of the body and the mind here? We are. And so as dead men walking... We are following the course of this world. We are following the influence of Satan in our lives. And we are also carrying out our own desires, the desires of our minds and our bodies. And then he says this very powerful phrase, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's almost as if Paul is bringing it all together and saying, that's why I'm calling us Dead men walking. That's who we used to be. Now, I'll be honest with you. When I first became a Christian, the image that I had of God in my mind was 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 really nothing more than this this huge, gigantic um, teddy bear. And, uh, and 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 not necessarily is that the, the exact image in my mind, but everything that I thought God was. Every every way that I tended to describe him was really just the description of a big teddy bear. He was kind. He was warm. He was inviting. He was soft. He was loving. Loved to spend time with him. Loved to hang out with him. Loved to be close to him. And so I had this image of God as a big teddy bear in my mind. And so uh, I'll I'll never forget as I'm reading through the Bible um, and coming across words like Wrath justice and and I'll be honest with you I've had some brief moments of being wrecked by words like that describing God because the image I had of God in my mind isn't isn't the way God describes himself and so in those moments as I pushed back and went whoa I don't like to hear God being described that way God's Holy Spirit speaking to me said very clearly, Jason, you don't get to define who I am. You don't get to determine who you want me to be, and therefore that's who I am. God says, no, I am who I am. And so as I come across these pictures of God also being a God of justice and a God of wrath, a God who punishes sin, what I'm getting is a more clear and full view of who God is. Is he loving? Absolutely. Is he a God of wrath? You better believe it. And if you don't believe those two things are true, you don't believe in what happened on the cross. See, the cross is the collision of God's love and his wrath in one place on Jesus. For God so loved the world that he sent his son, right? For, because, because God loved us, and he displays his love for us in, in this, that while we were still dead in our trespasses, still sinners, Jesus died. So we know that the cross is a display of God's love for us. But let's just be honest. I don't, I don't want to send that to my wife for Valentine's Day. There's something very ugly and brutal and bloody and painful about the cross. And so we also see at the cross... God pours out his wrath. Wrath that was intended for who? Us. And at the cross, we see Jesus positioning himself as a display of God's love in our place to also take upon himself God's wrath. And so if you, if you don't believe that God is a God of both love and wrath, you don't fully understand or believe the cross. Now, in verse 4, Paul's going to make a shift here. Remember, he's reminding us of what God has done. We're still in indicatives. Verse 4. But God, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love, with which he loved us. So he doesn't just describe God as merciful and loving. He says, rich in mercy, great in love, with which he loved us. Verse five, even when we were what? Dead in our trespasses. Even when we were walking as dead men. Even when we were following the course of our culture. Even when we were following and falling into the schemes of Satan in our lives, even when we were carrying out the desires of our minds and our bodies, even then God made us alive together with Christ. Now this making us alive is a beautiful, beautiful God-glorifying thing. Jesus said it this way in John 10, 10. He describes the work of the thief. He says, the thief comes only to steal, to kill and destroy. We just talked about that. The thief comes to keep dead men dead. But Jesus says this, I have come that they may have life, but have it what? But not just, not just everyday ordinary life, not just a pulse and a breath life and brain activity, but to have life life abundantly Now the word here that gets translated abundantly is a is a very packed word it's packed with meaning here's some of the ways it gets translated exceeding what is added to more than necessary beyond measure superior extraordinary surpassing and uncommon what jesus was saying i've come that they may have life and have it exceedingly added to that they may have life more than is necessary beyond measure superior to what they used to have extraordinary surpassing anything that they would imagine and yes uncommon that's what i've come to do that's the that's the work i'm doing when i say that i am making you alive Everything that has been broken, everything that has been lost, everything has been made alive. Now, this should be huge for us, especially understanding life and death as we do. Think about it this way. Overall, mankind uh, has progressed and achieved consistently moving forward since humanity began. It hasn't always been on a on a on an increasing trajectory. There have been low points, but overall, we've progressed. We, have, we understand more today about the universe than we understood. Yesterday, and that we understood a hundred years ago and that we understood a thousand years ago As we understand more about matter and physics and, and biology. We're ever increasing in our understanding and our ability to maneuver through the universe and to navigate it and to manage it and to, uh, to, you know, to manipulate it into what we want it to do. Okay, so we're, every, every day we're becoming more and more in our minds control over the universe. But there's one thing that none of us can escape. And every time it happens, it reminds us of our lack of control. And that's death. Have you ever been around somebody who's passing away? Whether in the hospital, outside the hospital. Um, there is a moment. There is a moment where all the efforts are called off and a person is pronounced What? And what we are saying as a, as a, as a human race, there's nothing else I can do here to fix this situation. That is the gravity that Paul wants us to feel. That's the weight that he wants us to feel when he says to us, God has made us alive. He has done something in us that we absolutely couldn't do for ourselves and nobody else could do it for us but God. Like try, try to bring something back to life. I mean, try it. The next time you step on an ant, try to bring it back to life. You're reminded of how impossible death is. And so Paul is reminding us that we We've been made alive. Now think about it. If something is dead and brought back to life, the whole thing has to be brought back to life, right? You can't just get the heart beating, right, and call it alive. The whole system has to come back to life. The whole being has to come back to life. And so that's the second part that Paul wants us to understand is that everything that was broken, tore down, destroyed, killed in us, everything has been brought to life. Not just part of you, all of you. You used to be a dead man walking, and now you're alive. But not only have been made alive, we've been made alive together with Christ. This is, this is a powerful point in the gospel. Um, I don't want to share my story as though my story are any worse or better than yours. I just want to kind of illustrate here for you some of the issues that I believe we have in understanding our identity in Christ, um, that come from a lack of understanding of our identity period. Um, so like, um, I was raised by my mom Uh, at the age of five. My, my father went to prison. And so for the majority of my childhood and adolescence, it was pretty much mom, uh, leading the way. And I have a, incredible amount of, of, of appreciation and respect for single parents, um, single moms in particular, raising boys, because I'm just going to be, there's just only so much you can do. I mean, my mom would take me fishing. She would, she would try to lead me in things I was interested in and, and, and work very hard at it. I'll never forget, um, I was into hunting and outdoors, and I um, was a member of Ducks Unlimited, And uh, Ducks Unlimited had a youth program called the Green Wings, and so um, they would put on these father-son outings. And every time I would be reading about one of these events coming up, I would immediately say, "Well, I just can't—I can't go to that." And I don't know how it happened, but my mom discovered there was an event um, uh, close by, one of these Green Wing father-son outings, and she said, "Well, how come you've never asked me, you know, to go to one of these?" And I just because I don't have a father to take me. and, and that didn't stop her. She says, no, well, if you want to go, we'll go. And I'll never forget, like, there were a few, like, we, so we pull into the property. There's a big quail hunt display and working dogs. There's a lot of just men running around in camouflage with guns and shooting stuff. And, 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 and so, like, um, there were, like, a few women in the, uh, the kitchen area cooking lunch. And I'm not saying that's where women belong. I'm just saying that's where they were. Um, and then, but out among all the participants in the event, just my mom. And, and now looking back, I see just how courageous that was of her. Now, that being said, I grew up pretty confused about what it means to be a man who I actually was growing into. And, 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 and for a number of other reasons, the, the, the cultural imprinting on my life of what it was, you know, what it was to be a man and then the inabilities I saw in myself and my inability to success to excel and perform and and so I just struggled with uh, who I was and i I'll be honest with you i did some I did some very desperate things as a teenager trying to project an identity and and so this united with Christ is a really po- powerful part of the gospel for me personally you see i I learned at a very early age. Unless I perform well, people don't want to be around me. Nobody would say that. They would just quit inviting me. And what the gospel is saying to me is not only has Jesus made me alive, he's united me in a relationship with him that nobody can take away. He will never leave me for not performing good enough. He will never base his relationship with me on how hard I'm working, how good I'm being, how faithful I am to the imperatives, the do's and the don'ts. Jesus has united me to himself because he loves me. Now as we continue reading Out of God's rich mercy and his great love, when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. I think we have maybe a deeper understanding of this next phrase. By grace, you have been saved. Grace is God's unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor towards you. Period. Period. Now, there's always a conversation that, that I like to bring up in thinking of God's grace towards us, especially after we just read about being dead and uh, being objects of God's wrath and how we, we push back and go, whoa, I didn't know God also had a mean side. I didn't know God was that way. Um, it's the conversation about being fair, okay? And, and so we have it in here. If you're new here, we have this several times a year. We talk through, we remind ourselves of, of what we actually want God to be and instead of, instead of projecting on him that we somehow think he needs to be fair with us. Like, and so it doesn't work in my family with my boys. It doesn't work in, in our faith with God where we, we project onto God as an authority that he must operate according to what we consider to be fair. Okay, So it's like with the boys, it's like, hey, I deserve this. Why do you deserve that? Because he got it. I deserve to not have to clean my room. Why? Because he's not cleaning his room. And so I am, as I grow in my understanding of who God is, trying to grow in my understanding of who I'm to be as a father, just very quickly, very early on, um, have begun derailing that train of thought. And so go ask um, my oldest son, Hudson, uh, the question, does your daddy ever try to be fair? He will answer you. Uh, if he understands the question, he will answer you with no. And then, if you follow that with, well, what does your daddy try to be? He will say, just. Now, he doesn't fully understand what that means, but he knows because I've said it over and over again this is my desire to be just. If we fully believe that God has sent his son and sent him by leaving the right hand of the Father to the earth to be born into humility, poverty, suffering, to take on our skin, to walk our journey, to taste our tears, to experience our suffering, to feel our pain, and to face our death. But not only that, after the brutality and the torture of the cross, and he's put in the tomb, he's humiliated, he's spat upon, they were pulling out his beard, they made fun of him. If we truly believe that God sent his son to do all this on our behalf and then resurrected from the dead so that we could have salvation from our cross so that we could be delivered from our cross so that we could be so that we as dead men could be made alive and all could be restored if we truly we truly believe that then then let's just be honest we don't want God to be fair I don't want fair I don't want what I deserve and and neither do you right and so that that becomes please God be unfair be just be consistent with your character be who you are God we want you to be who you are because you are rich in mercy and great in love and yes you're a God of wrath but you sent your son to endure your wrath so we don't have to please God be unfair to me you don't want God to be fair It is by grace you and I have been saved. And there's nothing fair about grace. Verse 6. This has also happened to us. He made us alive. He united us. He raised us up with him, being Jesus, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So Everything that God said he did, powerfully displayed in Jesus in chapter one, he's now saying that he powerfully displayed in our lives as well by raising us up and seating us with him in the heavenly places. Verse seven, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You know what I believe Paul is saying here? I believe he's thinking of the next life and he's saying that in the next life there will be a display of the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness. And you know what the display will be? Me and you. You're going to look at me in heaven and go, "Wow, God is rich in grace." Like really, he's rich in grace. And you know what? I'm going to do the same thing when I look at you. God He's not just a a God who has grace. He's a God who is immeasurably rich in grace. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through what? Through working hard? Through working through the list of do's and don'ts? Nope. Faith. And before you take faith and own it like it's the thing that you do to get you saved, look at what Paul says next. You've been saved. You've been saved by grace through faith. Oh, and by the way, this isn't your own doing either. It is the gift of God. Not a result of what? Works so that no one may boast. Paul just undid the entire performance based mindset of our culture, right there, in just those two sentences. You've been saved by grace, an unmerited gift, through faith. Oh, by the way, you didn't come up with a faith. That was a gift to you as well. And just to be clear, you didn't get into heaven because you're a good old boy, not by works, so that nobody gets to brag on themselves. Where's our bragging going to be? On the immeasurable riches of God's grace. We don't get saved by working. We don't get unsaved by not working. We've been saved by grace. Now, wait a second. Where are the imperatives? Okay, we're going to get there. There are things for us to do. So we'll get to the first imperative in just a minute. This last verse, verse 10. Paul describes us this way. For we are his worksmanship. It's the The very painful but yet beautiful image of a piece of iron being shaped, honed, refined on the anvil, being placed into the fire of suffering and trial, affliction and hardship, brought back out onto the anvil, shaped some more, dipped into the water and cooled off, only to do what? To start the process all over again. This is our Christian journey. This is our journey to follow Jesus. We are not our own worksmanship. We are his worksmanship. He's the one doing the work. We are, for we are his worksmanship created in Christ Jesus. Oh, look at this, for good works. Does God call you to good works? Absolutely. Are there imperative commands in the scripture? Absolutely. But every imperative is rooted in an indicative. Because this is who you are and what God has done in you and for you, therefore, go do. Even our good works, look at verse 10 says, even your good works were prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You used to walk as a dead man. You followed the course of the culture. You followed the influence and the schemes of Satan. You followed your own heart, mind, and body. You followed your own desires. Now you're a live man, and you're walking, and now you're following Jesus, and you're following Jesus into the good works that he's prepared beforehand for you. Every good work, if it's truly a good work, whether it's generosity or sharing the gospel with somebody, is an act of faith. You're believing something to be true, so they're they're therefore doing it. Think of the converse. Otherwise, you're just bartering. You're just trying to get people to like you. You're just trying to convince people that you're nicer than you are. But if it's truly a good work, like a good fruit, a good act of kindness, no strings attached, you're doing that because you believe God has first been kind to you. If you're being generous, truly generous, no strings attached, I don't want anybody to know that this is happening, you're doing so because you believe the gospel that God has first been generous to you. If you share your faith with somebody, you share the gospel with somebody who isn't a Christian, you're not doing that to get an extra merit badge for your, uh, for your little uh, you know, uniform you're going to be wearing in heaven. You're doing it because you believe the gospel is true. And so every act of good works is at its core an act of faith. Now we're going to fast forward to next week's sermon. The very first verse, verse 11, our first imperative. It's the second word. Therefore, what? Remember. Wow. What a hard command to obey. And it is. I want to end um, by reading to you a quote that um, I think for the most part, most people would agree and attribute this to Martin Luther. I'm just letting you know, I don't know that he actually said this. So um, if he didn't, don't hold me to it. Just, I said it, okay? But the, the gist of what is recorded that Martin Luther said, I think bears... Um, some powerful weight for what we just read. Okay? So here's what happened. Supposedly, this is how the story goes um, Martin Luther preached the gospel every week to his people. And so some of the folks who were regular attenders, maybe a little bit more faithful, felt like they were really moving forward in their maturity in Christ, began to push back. And, and as the story goes, one of these people came up to Martin Luther. Uh, maybe at the end of a, a Sunday service on the way out at some point and ask the question, Martin Luther, why do you continue to preach the gospel to us? We've already responded. We're all believers here. Why do you continue to preach the gospel to us? Well, the response as it, as it goes um, is this. And Like I said, if he didn't say this, um, then, then I said it. So, so here we go. Here, here's the response that was recorded. Because week after week you forget it. Why you preach the gospel to us every week? Because week after week you forget it. And because week after week you walk in here looking like a people who don't believe the gospel. And until you walk in here looking like people who are truly liberated by the truth of the gospel, I'm going to continue to preach it to you. Now, I think that quote, if Martin Luther said it, Martin Luther and Paul are really calling us to the same place. Paul's command to us in Ephesians 2.11 is to remember. Remember that which you already know. Remember that which you've already proclaimed to be true. As you live your life pursuing Christ and and you meet struggles Rather than, in your mind, thinking, I need to work harder here. If I'm ever going to overcome this struggle, if I'm ever going to overcome this temptation, if I'm ever going to break this addiction, quit this habit, if I'm ever going to succeed here, I must work harder. Instead of defaulting to that mindset, what Paul is calling us to do is to come back and remember what we've already said and believed to be true. Remember, you used to be a dead man. That struggle you're facing right now, Does it remind you of anything? It reminds you of who you used to be. That's not who you are anymore. You're made alive now. You're united with Christ now. You're walking after him now. And if we truly, truly believe that is true, our walk will be different. Your walk with Christ at its core isn't a doing issue. It's a believing issue that reveals itself in what you do. So here's where I want to end today. I just want to make these two points again. In Christ, you are made alive to live for Jesus. Not to go out and earn his favor or pay him back for saving you, but because you are now his. Who you are is defined and determined by whose you are. Here's the last one. In Christ Christ, we have been now set free to walk as his worksmanship into good works by faith. Let's pray together.